that's where Jesus' comment to the woman who comes in and washes his feet, those who see that they've been forgiven much will love much, but those who think they've been forgiven little will love little. And perhaps that's what it comes down to. Hey everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast. Mike Erie here. So glad to be with you and so glad to be a a small part of whatever journey it is that you are on. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. The last three episodes we have been talking about uh, the subject of abortion. And that, not shockingly, has raised a number of questions in response. One of the best things about doing this uh, podcast has been to get to know and to hear from so many people from so many places asking so many different wonderful and challenging things. And uh, I, I feel like I get the most out of this uh, simply because the the questions are so excellent. I just printed off probably 30 questions more. Uh, we're already hundreds behind, but um, I, I wanted to take some time today to just uh, respond to several questions we got regarding abortion. Um, and, you know, I, I, um, when, when I go back and listen to these things, there are all sorts of things I'd want to clarify and nuance and, but, um, we, we want to honor the raw and kind of unedited nature of what we do. And by unedited, I don't mean, um, that, that we just release the raw audio. No, we have a guy, Tim Stafford, who does an amazing job kind of cleaning it up and removing sneezes and coughs and all those sorts of things. But, but, you know, when we interview people, we just tell them, listen, we're not, unless there's something egregious, which has only happened one time, uh, in the history of the podcast, we don't, uh, we don't chop it up. Uh, in the early days, Andy and I would re-record stuff. Uh, we'd get, you know, half an hour in and just go, oh, this is awful and and just re-record it, but we don't edit it. Uh, we don't edit content out. So, uh, I love when we get questions in that help clarify things that uh, were said or implied that give us a chance to revisit these conversations. And so, uh, anyway, we're going to do a mailbag episode. It's just me in the room and you. And so, um, I think this will be great. So here's a, here's an email from um, a longtime friend, Michael, who says, okay, the series has been great. Uh, I have some questions on this topic which haven't been covered yet. I'm hoping you can cover them. Number one, what are your thoughts on abortion and how would you counsel someone considering getting an abortion when the woman has been raped? Especially if that rape was incestual, would your counsel change if the victim was really young? Uh, I can think of all sorts of circumstances where I would um, nuance, my general counsel would be whenever possible uh, to bring that child to term because we honor the Imago Dei, uh, the potential of life, I mean, all those sorts of things we've, we've discussed previously. But there are extenuating circumstances, and that's why I think you don't make a policy. I think you make a case-by-case sort of decision on how you would counsel uh, counsel somebody. But certainly if they were super young, certainly if they were um, uh, raped uh, or had undergone incest, uh, of course those would be extenuating circumstances. And um, I, I have uh, heard from women who have undergone abortions in those uh, circumstances and heard from women who have chosen to keep the child in those circumstances. And obviously both 
options aren't ideal. Uh, they both, you know, have their own kind of pain attached to them. And um, so, so if the question is, hey, would this change your counsel? Well, it, well, certainly. I, I don't know that I'd ever look at somebody and just automatically say, yes, I think you should have an abortion. Um, but I do think the wherever possible bring the baby to term is qualified by there are times when it's just not the best thing for the health of the mother um uh, certainly for that um in cases of rape and incest i i would highly qualify that advice um and again i as a guy i don't and can't really understand all that goes into a decision like that but i would certainly uh, approach it with a, a different perspective in view uh, question number two from Michael, how would you advise and counsel a couple who found out that the mom's life would be in danger if she didn't terminate the pregnancy? Uh, I, like I just said, I would absolutely consider the health of the mother to be paramount. The issue in some of the latest legislation was what, what counts as the health of the mother? Is it just physical? Is it mental? Is it emotional? Is it psychological? Um, and, and the, the law that was written in New York, at least the version I read, uh, didn't stipulate which of those applied. So you could, you know, is anxiety, the health of the mother is uh, potential depression, the health of the mother, a feeling of hopelessness is that the health of the mother. So I would want clarity on what we mean when we say the health of, if you're seeing like her life is physically in jeopardy, then of course, um, I, I think that we we choose the mom's life, absolutely. Um, so so I but, but but in other circumstances, I just don't know. I mean, if I'm suspicious that someone just doesn't want to have a child, but they find themselves pregnant, and they see abortion as contraception. Well, in, in those situations, I'm I'm much more liable to to really encourage somebody to keep the baby to term. Um, even though there may be anxiety attached to it or fear attached to it or uh, potential for depression or whatever attached to those things. Um, si- simply because I don't, I don't know how far to go in the, into the health of the mother argument before it starts to get super murky. And, uh, and so I don't know. I don't know. That would be the only hesitation I'd have there. And then lastly, this is a phenomenal question. Because we are in a study on abortion, could you please explain Numbers 5? <laughs> this passage appears to be sanctioning abortion when adultery happens. Oh, my goodness. Now, Numbers 5 is, it's got to be one of the top 10 wackiest, weirdest, disturbing passages in the Bible. It is, and I don't have all the details in front of me, so I'm going to give kind of vague answers But it is a test that a woman would undergo if her husband is jealous and suspects her of infidelity. And, um, and, and it's one of those, I mean, it's, you, you, and it, it's totally focused on the woman and not the man. And, 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 and so it's one of those texts we were talking with Tim Mackey several episodes ago. Where Tim said something that I thought was really powerful. He said, you know, when we come across a text, uh, some of these in the Old Testament, we just have to assume there's more going on than what our English translation gives us. More going on in the culture, more going on in the background. So because I, I find Jesus beautiful and compelling, 
And I think that um, the God revealed in the Old Testament is most fully revealed in and through Jesus. So it's not like God was schizophrenic. Uh, I, I tend to give a, a passage like this a benefit of the doubt in, in the following respect. There's got to be something else going on. Now, now, Michael's question comes specifically at the part, and let me give you just a bit of background. And again, I may get the, some of the details wrong. But the idea was the that the man initiated this. The woman would go before a priest and do a wave. I think it was a wave or a grain offering. And um, and then the, uh, the the priest would take some of the holy water from uh, I think it was the laver laver uh, in the temple, and then mix it with dirt, and then write the words of the curse down. And the curse would be something like, "If if I committed infidelity, may you know this bad thing happen to me, and if I did not, may I be shown to be guilty or shown to be innocent. Excuse me, and vindicated by God." And, and then he, the, the priest would write these curses down on a scroll and then wash the ink off into the water. And the woman, and that was a bitter drink, and now the woman would drink that. And, um, and if the covenant, if she had been indeed faithful to her husband, nothing would happen. Uh, and if she had not been, uh, in the NIV, it, it says that she would miscarry. And this is where Michael's question comes in, uh, is, well, okay, is God sanctioning miscarrying uh, in situations where there is adultery? And so so a couple of things. I mean, this, this opens up so many cans of worms. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. The, the first big point to make is that this passage actually um, helped protect women in a patriarchal culture where a woman could be accused and divorced and set aside, or um, she could be hurt by her husband. I mean, jealousy was a, you know, it's ugly now, but back then it, it could kill a woman if there was suspicion or jealousy. She was completely at the mercy of, of her husband and husband's family. And there's a really good argument to be made as I research this a while back, there's a really good argument to be made that this was actually something that was done to help protect women. And because it took the judgment out of the husband's hands and put it in the hands of God, who was an impartial judge. Um, so, and if you want more on this, there's a guy named Alistair Roberts. I think that's his name. And he's got a blog. <laughs> with, I didn't realize blogs were still out there, but they're still out there. And it's called Alistair, and it's like Alistair, staircase, um, adversaria, I think. And he has a write-up. So it's Alistair's adversaria. He has a write-up on Numbers 5 that is the best thing I've seen done on how this protects, how this was a protection for women. And uh, he's a PhD, so he's got the credentials. But it was it was super fascinating write-up. The second point I want to make in response to Michael's question is, uh, I, to my knowledge, only the NIV, the uh, New International Version of the Bible, translates the second part of the curse in Numbers 5 to be miscarry. Every other translation, and in fact, the Hebrew, if I remember correctly, um, the Hebrew is better translated 
waste away, like her abdomen will waste away or her thigh will rot. I mean, and, 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 and those are euphemisms. Thigh and abdomen were euphemisms for ge- the ge- woman's genital area. And uh, and so the NIV takes this uh, takes the this to mean a miscarry, when I, I, every other major Bible translation that I'm aware of talks about um, kind of her womb or her thigh rotting away, and the idea, and I think this is confirmed later in the passage, is that that it's not that she's miscarrying a child that she's pregnant with because pregnancy isn't the issue here. It's the husband's jealousy that is prompting this and. If the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, had been having regular relations, um, then if she were pregnant, he would not be surprised. It was only after she'd given birth that he might might be suspicious. And so I, I think there's a better case to be made that what we're talking about here is that her womb, if she is guilty, her womb will be closed. She will now become infertile. And, um, and if she is, uh, innocent, her, her womb will become fertile. And, um, so this isn't about keeping a baby or not keeping a baby. This is about, and and I, and I think this is confirmed at the end of that section when, when God says, and again, it's something like, um, if, uh, if she's vindicated, then she can, uh, she can now have children or she can keep having children. There's, it has to do with her barrenness um, or her ability to have kids. So I think the, the curse wasn't miscarry. The curse was uh, that her womb would, would shrink. Her womb would no longer be viable. And, um, and the, the innocent verdict would be either she would be able to keep having children or if she were barren before, she would now be able to have children. But super freaking weird passage. Oh my goodness. Great questions. Dang. Um, second set uh, of questions by uh, um, somebody who wants to remain, remain anonymous. Totally understood. My wife and I are not pregnant, but there are questions we're trying to address before we start trying to have children, which is a very good move. And I would like your insight on how to handle potential issue in a loving and Christ-like manner. I, stay, I am firmly against abortion. While my wife has told me that she would have an abortion with no reservations if she found out that our child had a significant chance of problems, parenthesis, high chance of death during or shortly after birth, high chance of life-altering birth defect, etc., close parenthesis, we are both Christians, but come from vastly different backgrounds. Um, uh, I grew up in America in a Christian home. She grew up in another country that was much more comfortable with abortion. Um, how? So here's his question. How should a husband begin to think through what to do if his wife wants an abortion to keep herself and the child from having to suffer? Allowing the abortion despite urging against it feels wrong. And forcing her to keep the child and give birth also feels wrong as I wouldn't be the only one bearing the burden of the decision. Now that, that is a tricky question. Uh, and, and I only know, um, I have no idea what I would do in, in your situation. I know that I would op- I operate under a couple of things. Number one, uh, I'm thrilled that we had uh, Seth, our special needs little boy. And um, uh, it has been hard and there has been suffering. 
Uh, and yet I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for the world. So I, I very much live by the, if at all possible, bring the child to term and see what happens. Um, I also live by the, the rule and the way of Jesus that love does not coerce, love does not manipulate, love does not force. And so <clears throat> any, any intention I would have of forcing or allowing those words are, are tough in a marital context when, um, you know, we're to love and serve each other, forcing and allowing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it in, in, in that sort of way. I would frame it as, um, okay, first question, what, what does life altering mean? Like, what, what are we talking about? She may be talking about extreme cases where the child is not viable outside the womb. Um, she may be talking about a cases where her potential health could be in jeopardy. Um, and so, so perhaps it's not as open-ended as, as maybe you think it is one thought. Second thought is, um, what does life altering mean? So Seth was born with the extra chromosome. Um, and that certainly is life altering. Um, so is life altering, is, does that, is that physical? Is that emotional? Is that a mental disability? Is that a, a physical a handicap? I mean, how far are we going on this thing? So I, I would raise all of those questions for sure. And I, I'm sure you already have. At the end of the day, um, I, I don't think you're in a place where we can allow or make, um, the, the woman who has to carry this child uh, to do one thing or the other. Now, obviously, if, if you're firmly against this and she does it, that's going to put a monster hole in the midst of your marriage, depending on how that guilt is processed and how that disappointment with each other is processed. I mean, that's a big, that's a big freaking deal, not just for the kid, not just for the mom, but for you two uh, at all together. And likewise, if if she keeps... The child, because she wants to, you know, love and honor your opinion in this, uh, is it is there a potential resentment and stuff down the road? So, to me, this is less about the the particular subject of abortion, and it's way more about how your relationship is going to work out, based on not just family of origin stuff, but how you manage. Uh, an incredibly difficult and complicated moral decision like this. The, the, so, so here's advice, and I have no idea if this is good. I have no idea if this is wise. Um, I just, off the top of my head, number one, pray like crazy. You never get put in that situation, uh, because I think it would be, if if neither of you budge, it would be really hard on your marriage. And so I would pray that that. Um, that that you're never put in that situation, the and I and I would pray if I'm the husband in this scenario, I would pray, um and 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 enjoin my my sweetheart to pray about okay what God what's your will on the on this matter, you know is there something you can read together study together is there a conversation you can have can she present to you her best case and you present to her your best case is it possible to engage. And bring in other uh, people um, uh, to listen and to help weigh and, and work out uh, those sorts of things. I don't know that you're going to come to some specific agreement. 
um, where it's you know a contract that says, well, if the child is is this, then we're, we'll keep it, and if it's not, we won't. Uh, but but rather, I think you're creating kind of the background for the kinds of discussions that would be necessary should you be presented with this exact circumstance, right? There's a there's a whole lot of commitment and trust and work and understanding and empathy that has to go in before you even get to those conversations for them to be in any way, shape, or form productive. Um, I I always find that you know using language of power. And these sorts of scenarios, um, and I speak from experience, uh, is like the least effective thing to do. Um, so you can't force her, and I wouldn't even use the language. And and it's not really allowing her. It's more like we need to arrive to some conclusion where we can live together with whatever decision is made. You may decide, uh, let's just adopt, <laughs> and let's let's not even open that open that door. I, I, and I don't know, I don't know what the best decision is for you both. I just know that um, my guess is it's deeper than the abortion issue, um, and the kind of commitment required to work through something like this should be should you be faced with a circumstance needs to begin now. You know, it's, it's, um, and, and I, and I would trust, I would trust that God would speak to her, um, and lead us together. And I would, you know, I would do all the praying Bible things that you would naturally think to do, but I, but I would, um, you know, seek to, to come at her as a partner, not as someone who's kind of got the, the whole say over the whole decision. I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm just saying some of that language sounds like you could be. And I would caution you against that. I don't think that I don't think that would help. Um, and and then then depending on whatever decision is made, I mean I think there's going to be resentment and disappointment either direction. And so how you how you handle that? You know, do you do you want to process it with a with a marriage therapist? Do you want to process some of this stuff with a marriage therapist? That might be good before it ever comes up. So though, that's just a scattering. I don't even know if any of that is helpful. I empathize. Uh, and and uh, I can't I can't really understand just because my wife and I were both very much confronted with the same decision. You know, do you? Because the our, our our child Seth could have could have had trisomy eighteen, which meant he wouldn't have been viable um, outside of the womb, and and uh, or twenty one, and 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 we just it was hard, but we just came to the place where we said, okay, God, however this child comes to us, we will welcome. Uh, this child is an image bearer, and um, and and when we chose to get pregnant, we realized that love was worth the risk. And um, so I think there's a uh, a lot of incredibly deep and rich conversations to be had. I, and again, man, I I'm sorry not to be more helpful. I'd want to sit down with you both and process it more before I'd say anything more specific. Third question, uh, a question came to mind on your latest podcast with Bonnie Lewis. What is so bad about shaming people? I personally don't like being shamed and try not to shame people, but it seems that Jesus shamed the Pharisees quite a bit. Uh, When do we know when it is appropriate or is it just for Christ or is it a bad 
or is it bad when it comes from a place of pride? I don't know if I can humbly shame someone, so maybe I should avoid it till I get this humility thing figured out. <laughs> oh, what a great question. And if you remember last episode, we were talking about uh, a questioner had asked, well, you know, if I could save one baby, is it worth it to shame 10 people? And um, and we were wrestling, you know, back and forth with that. And I don't know if we have a good answer. The question is just worth wrestling with. It's brilliant. So so this individual, this young man, James says, hey, I mean, really, what's so bad about shaming people? Isn't, isn't shame... Hasn't shame become demonized in our culture? And and, and I would say um, that you're right and you're wrong. And here's what I mean. You're right in the sense that there is a, a healthy place for shame. Now, I, I know not everyone's going to agree with that. But shame is one of the emotions uh, that human souls were capable of feeling. Now, I, I don't know if it was built before the fall or came after the fall of humanity or whatever. But, but certainly the idea that, that we would engage in things and then come to regret them and be ashamed of them, um, I, I'm not, and again, I'm no, absolutely no psychologist. So if you're a psychologist and you listen and you want to chime in on shame, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, my thought is that, that there's something right with what you're saying, that shame isn't always a bad thing. Um, yeah, I, but I would say you, the analogy for Jesus and the Pharisees doesn't work because shame was different. It was understood. See, the, the, Jesus lived in an honor-shame culture, and shaming there communicated something much differently than what our shaming does. Um, for Jesus, every public interaction was an honor-shame contest. and And so very often his responses... And, and his rants were insulting, yes, but they were done in a way that was consistent with the honor-shame values of the culture in ways that wouldn't be um, received the same today. So when I talk about shaming somebody, uh, I, I'm talking about um, uh, if, if God isn't calling them to true repentance, I'm going to do my best to, to wake them up to see the evil of what they've done. Um, and, and in some cases of who they are, right? Cause shame doesn't just always deal with behavior. It's some, it, it very often deals with the individual's identity. So when I'm shaming them, I'm not just shaming what they do, but I'm shaming them. So I would not grant that Jesus's example can be used, um, in the same way and receive sort of the same, um, uh, blessing <laughs> that that it would have received in the in the first century that Jesus that that when people are trying to trick Jesus or trap Jesus they're trying to shame him but shame there means something shame means something more like losing social capital that's what shame means in that culture for us shame means you're despicable there's something wrong with you I mean it, shame has all these other connotations back then it was the honor and shame thing was a, a a way to manage how people were seeing you and how they perceived you. And there was, it was a zero sum game and, and the questions Jesus were asked and the way he rebuked the Pharisees, all of that was done in the context of that honor, shame culture. To me, the reason, and, and you identify it right at the end of your email, I love it. The reason I don't, I would not, I, I would not purposely engage in shaming. 
uh, anymore. Um, I've seen what it does to kids as a parent. I've seen what it does uh, to people outside of the kingdom. How I don't know of anybody who's been shamed into the kingdom of God. I think shaming, and, and if you're going to follow the lead, leading of Jesus, then the, the people we need to be shaming are the religious people. Um, Jesus didn't shame the sinners. So, um, in fact, he he shared their social status in many ways. And, and so if you want to fully lean into the example of Jesus here, um, yeah, go ahead and shame religious people all day long. The self-righteous people, fantastic. But the problem becomes the minute you begin shaming self-righteous people, you become one of them. And so my pride is so great that I, I cannot engage in that without damaging myself. Moreover, I don't see Jesus ever doing this with people outside his kingdom. So for me... Uh, there, there are other ways to go about opposing um, uh, abortion and promoting a pro-life viewpoint than having to shame people. So that's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal question. And, and I get what you're saying. There, you know, there is, there is a healthy shame that's out there. And particularly in honor shame cultures, there was a healthy shame. No question about it. All right, last, last question. Um, and, and by the way, you guys, uh, again, I know the answers aren't genius. I'm not, uh, I'm not a genius at all in this, but it's so important to do this because a podcast is just a monologue and, um, you know, I wish we could all be in the room together having these conversations. And so this is a great way to give voice to what some of you are thinking and push my thinking. And so I'm so grateful you do this. Uh, I really wish I could have been part of the conversation with you and Bonnie around the question of shaming women at an abortion clinic while saving the life of a baby. If I were engaging with that person bringing the question, the question was, hey, is it okay to shame 10 if you can save the life of one baby? Um, if I were engaging with the person bringing that question, I would go with them to the logical outcome that you went to, Mike. Namely, that the shamed woman that went through with the abortion reaps the shame as a natural consequence to her act of murder. Thus, even if she eventually commits suicide, it's a result of the hardening of her heart, and the onus is not on the protester or accuser. And now that's that's what he's saying if, if we go ahead and shame them. There's a view out there in Christian circles that says, well, that's what they deserve. And whatever consequences flow from that shame, that's what they deserve. His counter to that line of thinking is, okay, well and good, but if I shame her, I would now, um, not, I would now say, by shaming her at the clinic, the Christian has effectively placed an obstacle in that woman's path, barring her from the church. The Christian has locked her out of the place that she can come to experience life. In shaming her, Christ's representative is saying that her sin of abortion is unforgivable and she is eternally condemned at that moment. Um, and then he says, I would look at the questioner uh, in the eye and say, what are times in your life that someone has barred the path of life to Jesus from you? Odds are if someone is so willing to condemn another beyond hope, they may have also done so to themselves and they have yet to experience the fullness of God's grace in their own life. May God have mercy in this situation and bring all to the fullness of life. So, so the issue is, all right, in shaming, 
as a person of Jesus, what are we saying to somebody? And this gentleman is arguing that what we're saying is that we are saying that they are that they are cut off. They are they are unforgivable. They're untouchable, um, and that uh, they should they they are effectively barred. They they have an obstacle put in their path to come to the one place where they'll find healing. Um, and freedom, they are barred from that because uh, as a Christian, I've now represented Jesus to them as uh, Jesus is, you know, often represented. He's angry, uh, he's vindictive, and uh, he certainly, he certainly has no tolerance for murdering his image bearers. Um, and, and so the, the response here is, well, um, uh, probably not a good idea. <laughs> And, and not only that, uh, the odds are, and I don't think our questioner was saying this. I mean, I think our questioner was asking a really good question, but let's say the questioner was saying, yeah, damn straight. I will, I will absolutely shame 10 um, to save one. And, and then this questioner saying, well, okay, so what happened to you? Right? This just doesn't happen in a vacuum. What kind of, what image of God do you have to have? to believe that that's the way to approach this issue. See, and that's that's what's so fascinating to me is on the uh, like we're working out our theology in very practical ways here. So if I'm shaming people because of this unbelievably tragic choice to to take the life of a of a child, let's call it. Um and and I think that that's the best way to deal with this situation, what what view of God am I carrying around that leads me to that conclusion? And likewise, suppose I, I have no problem. I mean, there was just a, a bill that was vetoed that would have provided um, care for an infant that survived a botched abortion attempt, and and that was that was voted down. Uh, what kind of view of God is that? Um, the, the Jesus I see in the, in the scriptures is way more complex than just the permissive, however you feel and whether or not it's convenient for you on the one side. And then the angry, I'm super pissed whenever you do something wrong, especially if it's egregious, holy cow, there's no redemption for you, man, both of those are equally damaging. So Jesus comes preaching grace and truth and certainly was not afraid to call out sin not only by his words, but by his life, his example. No question about that. But at the same time, the way he treated the sinners was so markedly different than, than the idea of bringing shame to them. Um, and, and in fact, like our other questioner just said, the shame that he brought was often to the people who were caught up so much in their own self-righteousness, they were not willing to uh, give grace to others. And so perhaps that's where Jesus's comment to the woman who comes in and washes his feet, those who see that they've been forgiven much will love much, but those who think they've been forgiven little will love little. And perhaps that's what it comes down to. Anyway, my friends, thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you who rate, subscribe, review, all of that stuff matters. It really does and the way that podcasts get recommended. Um, thank you, too. We've got a number of new Patreon supporters. Um, we, we are in the process of reworking kind of our, our ways of saying thank you to Patreon supporters. And so 
Um, we're super grateful that people not only support us by praying and support us by asking and doing those things, but there are some that's, that support us financially. And that's, that is unbelievably helpful as we do pay Tim and, and we do carry the cost of some equipment. And, um, I pay, I get paid a little bit to do this and, uh, and all those sorts of things. So anyway, it's a big deal, and we're super grateful for it. If you want to join that community, go to patreon.com uh, and look for the Vox Podcast. And so anyway, my friends, thank you so much. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace in these days. Till next time, friends. 